Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for metamodern mutants interested in meditation, non-duality, hardcore dharma, weirdness, death, awakening, spaciousness, and so much more. My name is Michael Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode I'm speaking with Jeffrey Kripal. Jeffrey J. Kripal holds the J. Newton Razor Chair in Philosophy and Religious Thought at Rice University where he served as the Associate Dean of the School of Humanities, chaired the Department of Religion for eight years, and also helped create a doctoral concentration in the study of Gnosticism, Esotericism, and Mysticism that is the largest program of its kind in the world. He presently helps direct the Center for Theory and Research at the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California. Jeffrey is the author or co-author of 13 books, and specializes in the study of extreme religious states and putting the impossible back on the academic table again. He is presently working on a three-volume study of paranormal currents in the history of religions and the sciences collectively entitled The Super Story. And now I give you a conversation with Jeffrey Kripal. Jeffrey, welcome to the Deconstructing Yourself podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Eric Davis, our mutual friend, had you at Alembic for a really, really cool talk. And that was so much fun to watch. And I had read your book, Kali's Child, previously. And as someone who had a big interest, multi-decade interest with reading every single book and going to Dakshineshwar physically and all that in Sri Ramakrishna, I found that book upsetting, terrifying, fascinating, wonderful, powerful, beautiful, interesting, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, that's how I experienced it as well. (laughs) (laughs) And then based on the talk I saw you give, I also read your newest book, The Flip, which is really, really interesting. So I'm really excited to have you on the show and I just want to welcome you again. And thank you. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me, Michael. I really do appreciate it. And I don't say that for just performative reasons. I mean, I I do. I really do. Great, man. So let's dive right in. I want to first talk to you about, you know, you have a really interesting position, something that I very rarely see, but I really like it. I really respect it. And I'm going to characterize it maybe crudely. And so you can tell me where I'm really off here. But what I like about it is it's certainly not scientific materialism, but it's not, oh, Eastern religion is all true, but it's not only UFOs are real. It's more of a position of just openness to stuff. Yeah. Like intelligent openness to various things that we don't know everything. And it's such a humble position and so rare because it's very hard to stake out the territory of don't know, right? How would you sharpen up that really crude definition I'm making of the territory you're into? I don't think it's crude at all. I think most of the reflexes of people is to reduce everything either to society, which is what happens, I think, in the humanities, or to nature, which is what happens in the sciences. And I'm basically trying to say, look, these kinds of experiences we're talking about can't really be explained in social terms, and they can't really be explained in natural or scientific terms either. 
And that doesn't mean that the religions have the answers. I actually don't think that. I think the religions have a kind of vertical orientation, which is really valuable and really useful in this context, but they themselves fall into certainties and belief systems. And I want to resist those belief systems. I want to resist those cultures. And so it leaves me in a kind of no-person land, right? Yes, precisely. But it's honest, and I think it's pretty obvious, actually. And I think it speaks to a lot of people, actually. I think they feel this, and they know this. And I'm just trying to be honest. I'm just trying to be really blunt and honest with where we're at. Yeah, and it's what blew my socks off when I was listening to you and Eric talking was simply, wow, he's being really, really truthful here. And it's such a hard, for me anyway, I see it as both almost like a necessary place, but a really hard place because simply put, everybody wants certainties and it's the place of no certainties. Yeah, I mean, the way I would put that is I was offered certainty as a young man and I could have definitely entered a monastery and been certain for the rest of my life and had a community and had a tradition. And that would have been actually really powerful and really attractive. But I didn't take that. I didn't sign my name to the certainty. And as a result, I don't have a community, Michael. I don't want to idolize or romanticize this position. You kind of do end up suspended between the worlds, as it were. But again, I think it's just honest and it's where we're at as a broader culture. I think a lot of people are here, actually. I agree. Yeah. And, you know, my method is really simple. It's basically to walk into a situation and to start speaking what I think is true, and people respond. And they're like, yeah, that's right. I mean, this hence your excitement, you know, listening to Eric and I at the Alembic. I mean, that was just an example of that, really. I experienced it anyway as like water in the desert. You know, <laughs> like it's, it's just you just never hear people really taking that as a non-position position or whatever. And yet, for me anyway, the only one that actually makes any sense in the long run. It's also really hilarious and disturbing and tremendously sad to hear your own description of just the hollowing out of the humanities. It's certainly something I see every day with the people I'm working with. That seems to be like the lost project of humanity, at least Western humanity, that anything to do with art or music or culture or beauty, being able to say anything important about anything. Whereas it seems like 40 years ago or something, that was still really present in society. Somehow in the last 20 years, it just seems to have been like hollowed out entirely. Yeah. I think the criticisms and the reservations of the last 40 or 50 years have been healthy in some sense. They're just, they're plausible, they're real. On the other hand, it's left us in a, a kind of deconstruction with really no way out. So that's really what I'm trying to speak to is, okay, your podcast is called Deconstructing the Self. I mean, there is a deconstruction. It's valuable. It's true. But there's something beyond that. And there is no beyond in contemporary intellectual life. It's just a kind of nihilism. And that's what I'm trying to speak to is that sense of despair and that sense of nothing. And so what do you see as 
potential reservoirs or oases of sort of hope in this desert? So, you know, after the flip, actually, I wrote this book called The Superhumanities. And essentially, its argument is that the humanities actually has all of these resources already in it, that a lot of the great ideas of the Western intellectual tradition were products of altered states, essentially. People don't think their way to great ideas. Great ideas are revealed to them in profound and altered states. And those might be precognitive dreams, those might be psychedelic states, those might be near-death experiences, those might be mystical experiences of unity, but they're really extreme states. And I think those are encoded in a lot of the people we read and we revere. I'm essentially an optimist, Michael. I think the humanities have these resources, but that we've essentially ignored them. And we've essentially turned to the critical aspect of the humanities, which is important and very much part of the picture. But we sort of pretend that's all there is. And as a result, we become essentially depressed because it's all deconstruction, it's all criticism, and there's nothing left over. But there is something left over. And there are these altered states, and they are important, and they're ultimately important. I don't think they're sort of important. I think they're really, really important. I'm hopeful, actually. I think we have the way forward. We're just not using it. Yeah, I mean, it's very hard to find this encoded knowledge when we're analyzing a poem, The Fairy Queen, in terms of Elizabethan economic theory or something. (laughs) And it seems like that's all that those departments are doing anymore, or am I wrong here? Well, I actually don't think that's all. Thank God. Yeah. So the question I get a lot is, how do you deal with the pushback? And again, my response is always, what pushback? I think intellectuals are actually really, really interesting and really, really affirmative in a lot of ways, but they're not listened to. And I think there are ways, there are means in the great books, as it were, to kind of get beyond these ideas or get beyond these deconstructions. I think the deconstructions are important. I think part of the problem is the deconstructions are so darn convincing and they're so darn necessary. I don't want to pretend otherwise. But to say that that's adequate, I think, is another whole mistake we make. Yeah, they're certainly important and useful and helpful. I don't want to somehow say that no one should be doing that. Do you think it's just a case of that was a really powerful, important direction and the pendulum swung that way and now it's going to swing back or are we going to swing in a third direction? I think the pendulum needs to swing in the way it's swinging. I guess I'm very accepting and very sympathetic to the sort of prophetic dimensions of the humanities that are at the fore now. But I don't think that's ultimately adequate. And I think the pendulum will swing back, maybe not to the other side, but it's certainly to the middle. I don't know, Michael. I guess I'm ultimately optimistic. And I think intellectuals are people too, and they see the inadequacies of these methods, and they don't always work towards answers, but they sometimes do. And I think the disciplines will eventually correct themselves, or balance out, as it were. I shouldn't say correct themselves, because I don't think what they're doing is wrong. Very sane take. I appreciate it. I really want to seize upon this phrase you use, the prophetic dimension, 
of the humanities. Can you say more about that? Yeah, let me speak to that. I think it's really important. So all of my early work was on gender and sexual orientation. And essentially what I learned or what I came to conclude was that it, it's pretty much hopeless. And by that, I mean that the religions are never going to live up to our present value systems. They were created in different places in different times, and they're never going to live up to our present value systems around gender and sexuality. And I think the same is true of race. I think the same is true of any kind of moral question. But I think those methods are incredibly important and powerful. Listen, I spent 15 to 20 years on gender theory and sexual orientation, and I believe in those methods. I'm very much a psychoanalytic thinker, for example. I think psychoanalysis basically had it right. But that doesn't mean I think that's the full truth. And I think the difference is whether you think the prophetic dimension is the whole shebang or whether you think it's part of the truth. And, and I definitely think it's part of the truth. I don't think it's the whole shebang. If you want to get a nice hit of the prophetic dimension, where do you reach? What's the first thing that comes to mind or to hand? Well, most of the study of religion is prophetic, by the way. Yes. It essentially reads religion in a social way, and it sees religion as a kind of camouflage or a kind of ideology in disguise that privileges some people and deprivileges other people. And it's very easy to do that. It's very easy to see religion as essentially bad politics. And none of it lives up to our standards or our liberal moral values. You know, I just go to the sociology or the history of religions and I'm like, it just doesn't work. It's bad, you know, on all kinds of levels. But again, it's not just bad. It also witnesses to this vertical dimension. And that vertical dimension has absolutely nothing to do with society or identity or gender or sexuality or race, frankly. So I think there's always a vertical dimension at work that is really powerful to remember. And it doesn't fit into any of these prophetic dimensions. It's so interesting. I mean, the statement you make that basically the religion's can't adapt, is what I hear you saying, to our modern values, postmodern values, current values. That's a strong statement, and it's probably true. I wish it were not true. I wish I was wrong. Well, you read someone like Wilbur, he's all about all of these could adapt, and the story could be made to be interpreted in a way that is same story, same exact mythology, all that, but it could be just seen from such a different lens. But that just, for some reason, doesn't seem to happen, at least not very much. Yeah, my own feeling about religion is that it's essentially a conservative force. It preserves a particular social system, and it supports social injustice. It supports doing bad things to particular people or particular groups of people for the sake of some absolute, you know, cosmic truth that can't be questioned. Michael, I'm deeply suspicious of religion. I don't belong to a religion. You know, I often describe myself as a deeply religious person within a religion. And the reason is that I'm deeply suspicious of all of these religious systems. And, and I mean all of them. Yep. I don't mean just the European Christian ones. I mean the Asian ones. I mean all of it. And that is a difficult 
position to be in. I don't want to admire that or, again, idealize that in any way. But I just think it's true. Well, having spent a lot of time in Asian religious traditions, I agree, especially when it's not just filtered through a bunch of lenses and experienced in the States, but when you actually go to the source cultures and see how it's played out, it's like, wow. Yeah. Very eye-opening. Trust me, I know. (laughs) (laughs) So what can you tell me, like, there you were about to become a monastic in I presume, a Western religious tradition. Yeah, it was Benedictine, actually. Yeah, a Benedictine monk and about to really embark on that life. And what intervened to break that path? Yeah. So first of all, I received an amazing education. And I'm deeply grateful to the Benedictine monks who trained me and who also psychoanalyzed me, by the way. I received psychoanalysis and I received philosophy and kind of history and all kinds of things through that tradition that I'm extremely grateful for. And, you know, the story I always tell is that when I graduated, I was told very clearly that I could join the monastery and they would take care of every need I had for the rest of my life. And I would be, you know, essentially happy, but that I could not ask the questions I was asking. And I didn't hear that as censorious I mean, they weren't saying that in any kind of negative way. They were simply saying, look, if you're going to be a part of this religious community, there are rules in place, and these kinds of questions will upset the card, as it were. And I chose to ask those questions. I chose to pursue those questions. But again, I don't romanticize that decision, and I lost a lot by making that decision. I do not question the relevance of the community and the tradition that told me not to ask those questions. So that was really the decision tree, Michael, was, I, you know, I was probably all of, what, 22? And it was either, you know, go to graduate school and, and become a historian of religions or enter the monastery and become a monk. And I chose the academic path, again, just because I could not let go of the questions, I guess is at the end of the day. They were just too important to me. But again, I did not hear that decision tree as any kind of condemnation or censorship of my questions, not at all. They were like, Jeff, go do that. Go be an academic if that's what you want. But if you want to be a monk, here are the rules. I'm like, okay, I get it. I get it. So I went to graduate school. How do you feel about that decision now? (laughs) I mean, you know, you always want to justify your life, right? You want to say you made the right decisions. And of course, you did make the right decisions to be at the place where you are at the moment. But I don't know if I made the right decision. I mean, I certainly made a decision and I certainly paid for it in all kinds of positive and negative ways. But other people are going to make other decisions, Michael. And I don't think they're the wrong decisions. I just think they're different decisions and they're different lives. And I certainly accept my life for what it is. And I'm happy I made the decisions I made. But again, what else am I supposed to say? I mean, I'm very aware that, you know, when you're down the path of a particular life, you want to say you made the right decisions. But I don't know. Did I? I don't know. I assume semi-seriously as a young adult, being willing to think about taking the path of a Benedictine monk you felt you had some kind of relationship with Christ. Yeah. 
And what's that like for you now? Well, okay. So that kind of gets to the heart of the question. My view at 22 was essentially that the relationship to Christ was essentially a homoerotic one, certainly in the Catholic tradition, with the men I knew. And I simply wasn't so oriented. And so the question for me was, well, how do I relate to God if it's not in a homoerotic fashion? I mean, if God is male and and I'm male, then I'm forced into this particular kind of relationship just by virtue of the tradition. Yeah. And I just never fit in. You know, I write endlessly of the humanist too now, and I also write endlessly of the legitimacy of human deification. And I think the notion of Christology or my relationship to Christ is a very close one, but it's also a very heretical one. It's a heterodox or or Gnostic one. I think everyone is essentially divine and not just some first century rabbi. So is that a relationship to Christ? I think so. (laughs) Is it orthodox? No, it's not. It's not at all. And I want to recognize that. I don't want to pretend some kind of orthodoxy I don't have. The vision of what I would call, or Matthew Fox would call, the cosmic Christ just doesn't really fit into Christianity in the end, right? The divinity of the individual is actually completely heretical. It certainly did not fit into my life. I mean, my experience of the seminary and my experience of Catholicism was that this was essentially a gay community And I don't mean that in a condemning way. I just mean it was. And I was not so oriented, and I did not fit in. And so the question for me was, why? What is the relationship between male sexual orientation and sanctity, certainly in Catholicism immediately, but also in the broader history of religions? And those were the questions, Michael, that drove my life and my scholarship for almost two decades until I wrote Collie's Child and concluded that male heterosexuality was essentially heretical across the board, including in Hinduism. And, you know, I was chased out of India. I was chased out of that Hindu spiritual worldview for those views. So it was sort of reliving of my experience of Catholicism on another level, really. And I landed in a kind of no-person's land not because I wanted to, but because that was was just what happened. That was the nature of my life. That was the nature of my rejection by these religious traditions. So I became a historian of religions. I became an academic. You know, my joke is always, you back into that. No kid grows up saying, I want to be a scholar of religion. (laughs) That's a weird kid. If your kid says that, you should be troubled, by the way. You should be worried. But I became a scholar of religion because none of the religions would have me. And I mean that. I'm not just joking about that. I really believe that. And I'm trying to understand our place in the cosmos and our relationship to God, as it were, outside all of these religions. Well, one place that people go to try to look for that in our society is, of course, through some kind of science. They're trying to find it in neurocorrelates of experience, or they're trying to find it in some interpretation of quantum physics or their view of quantum physics or whatever. And there's so many different paths in, but we might say that 
science broadly is kind of the true religion of our society. And so when people don't find religion, religion to be satisfying, very often they'll reach out to science. And of course, just like you, I think I deeply respect religion and the religions and also science and scientists. But you write something in the flip that is, I thought, really quite accurate. It's just a short paragraph. I'm just going to read it about how our current, let's say, social view of science enforces itself. Yeah. That I thought was just really interesting. So quoting here, the materialist interpretation of the world and of science itself is protected not by the facts or by the data of our honest experiences, but by what is essentially social and professional peer pressure, something more akin to the grade school or a playground or a high school prom. The world is preserved through eyes rolling back, snide remarks, arrogant smirks, and subtle or not-so-subtle social cues, and a kind of professional or conjugal shaming, end quote. How would you unpack that paragraph? I just think there's so much there about how there's just a kind of almost culture of bullying around keeping science, kind of a really reductive view of science, foremost in our society. Yeah, I mean... So there's science and then there's the interpretation of science. And the scientific method is not materialism. Materialism is a particular interpretation of the scientific method, of course. But I think we live in a world where scientific materialism is assumed. And by that, I think we imagine that the external world is real, the objects out there are real, and that our internal experience is not real that it's a series of hallucinations or subjective states that need to be removed for this objective view of the world, which we imagine as science. I think that's devastating, Michael. I think we live in a world that denies us. And I think scientific materialism is horrifically depressing and destructive on all kinds of levels, but particularly a spiritual level. And I think people who have spiritual experiences or anomalous experiences, to speak more broadly, are basically stunned or basically expelled from reality for having these experiences. And they're told that these experiences can't happen or that they're not real. And I just morally reject that on a really profound level. I think that human experiences that are dramatic and real and direct are part of the world. And that the materialist interpretation of the world just doesn't really work at the end of the day. But it's definitely the reigning worldview. And whether we admit that or not, it's simply true. You cannot really talk about a spiritual experience in politics or or in the media or in the university without eye rolls and you know, ridiculous comments about tinfoil hats and and hallucinations. And I just think that's wrong. I just think it's fundamentally wrong and really damaging. And the flip is very much about those experiences in scientists and engineers and medical professionals. I mean, I wrote that book um, because I teach at a STEM-oriented school, and my students are primarily future doctors and engineers and scientists. And they do not take religious sources seriously. I think their baseline assumption is, oh, these are religious people who don't know their science. And if they knew their science, they wouldn't say these ridiculous things. 
And so I wrote a book about scientists and engineers and medical professionals who do know their science and who nevertheless have these experiences. And so I essentially, you know, backed my students into a corner and said, hey, look, your own Nobel laureates and your own revered people have these experiences. So now what? And so I essentially forced the question. And that's what I'm trying to do in that book is just essentially force the question. Now what? What do we do? You know, what do we say? But also just taking very seriously this secular scientific worldview we're in. I think it's hopeless and pointless to pretend otherwise. What kind of reactions and feedback have you mainly gotten from the book? I presume you must have a giant mailbag full of people having weird experiences, which... (laughs) I can't keep up with my email. It's pointless. It's hopeless. You know, I would say that the primary response to that book is one of profound appreciation, including from the scientists and the engineers and the medical professionals. They're like, okay, someone has finally spoken the truth, as it were. And yes, there is pushback, Michael. There are people who object to the book on this or that ground, but they're primarily people who object to the fact that it was published at all. I mean, they're objecting to publishers and legitimate outlets taking seriously the book. But that's the point of the book, right? I mean, the point of the book is... I mean, the point of the book is there are really smart people saying these things. Can't we listen to them? This isn't just about people who don't know their science. Again, I, I mean, going back to my earlier comment, I mean, how do you deal with the pushback? The answer is what pushback? I get a lot of love for this book, actually. And I don't want to pretend it's not problematic, but I also don't want to pretend that it's controversial because it's just not. It's just not. And it's not controversial because people are just ignoring it or because the people who love it love it, and the people who aren't into it just don't talk about it. It's hard to say. Part of it is it was written by a weird professor of religion, right, who has no status anyway in the culture. I mean, one of my jokes is, look, you know, the study of religion has no place in the hierarchy of knowledge. If this book would have been written by a neurosurgeon or a physicist or a chemist, it would be a blockbuster. But because it's written by a professor of religion, it's like nothing. But as a result of that lack of prestige or that order of knowledge, I have a lot of freedom. And I can say things that the physicist or the chemist or the neurosurgeon can't say. And so I say them. And so digging in a little further into the book, which I loved, or even out of the book, what's kind of your favorite, just personally enjoyable favorite example of very serious, very high achieving, very lauded scientist experiencing what you're calling the flip, which is sort of an unexplainable revelation? Yeah, I mean, one of my favorites is Carrie Mullis, actually who won the Nobel Prize for figuring out the DNA process. And, you know, I knew Carrie. I knew him personally. And essentially what happened to Carrie was (laughs) he had an amazing alien abduction experience is what happened to him on his cabin. And he talked about this in his autobiography, Dancing Naked in the Minefield. And his basic argument is, look, I know you can't do science with this. I know this is a one-off. But for God's sake, it happened. And please don't tell me it didn't happen. And 
It also had to do with his daughter. It had to do with a colleague from Japan. It had to do with a whole bunch of things that I think are really quite profound and that make absolutely no sense in our scientific worldview. I mean, basically what happened was Harry went up to his cabin from his university and he went up to his cabin in Northern California and he got there after midnight and he had to pee. And so he went to the outhouse. He got a flashlight and he walked to his outhouse and he, uh, he encountered a glowing raccoon <laughs> who said to him, good evening, good evening, Dr. Mullis. And that was the last thing he remembered. And the next thing that he remembered was he was walking down to his cabin at like 6 a.m. in the morning. And then he had a series of sort of terrifying kind of reactions to a particular part of the property. And he realized that something extraordinary had happened to him. And it turns out something extraordinary had happened to his daughter as well, completely independently of him on the same property. And, you know, he tells this story. He tells this story in his autobiography. And he's just adamant that it happened. To me, that's a really powerful story because it explains... Well, it doesn't explain anything, but it, it explains how people at the very top of their field can have these extraordinary flips that completely shake their worldview, and that these are part of the history of science, too. It's not just reasoning or doing the math. <laughs> you know, it's, it's also meeting glowing raccoons at you know, <laughs> one in the morning who say, good evening, doctor. I mean, that's just crazy, but it happened. And I guess that's my quickest and easiest way of saying this is part of our reality, that it happened. I don't know what it means. I don't know what it means about reality, but I know because of Carrie that it happened. And I really believe that. I don't say that without a sense of conviction. Yeah, yeah. That's great. What a great story. I'm curious, what do you think about the current resurgence of... UFOs and whatever they're calling them now, and people coming forward, apparently ex-government employees and so on. That's such a big thing in the news recently. <laughs> I have so much to say, Michael. I mean, you don't want to get me going about UFOs. I mean, I'll talk all night about UFOs. My feeling about that topic is that the military and the intelligence communities and the scientists are ignoring the full spectrum or the full phenomenon. They're concentrating on a small slice of the phenomena that fits into their worldview. And that might be, you know, a military threat. It might be some kind of secret government program. It might be an object that they can study scientifically. But if you actually study the phenomena, what you realize eventually is that it gets really, really weird and that it includes a whole spectrum of entities and craft in the sky and beings coming out of the sky. And it's just really, really strange. And it fits into the larger history of religions, but it actually doesn't fit into the, our sort of modern scientific or military or government worldviews. And I guess so what I would say about that is they need to listen to people who know something about the deeper history. And I think what we're seeing is what we expect to see, but it's not what the phenomenon itself is about. That's what I would say very bluntly. What do you think the phenomena is really about? I think it's screwing with us. I think deception is at the heart of the phenomena. 
And if you gave me enough beer, and by the way, you haven't given me any beer. I know. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, but if you gave me enough beer and you sat me down, I actually think it's us. I think it's us probably from the future. I don't think that time is what we think it is. And I suspect these are essentially time travelers and that they're human in some basic way. And that we experience them as demonic because they are demonic in relationship to our present assumptions and value systems. But they're not demonic in themselves. I think that's a grotesque misreading of the situation. What's interesting is that fascinating view. That is a sci-fi view, not a everyone is a thought in the mind of God kind of view. Yes. So I did write a book called Mutants and Mystics, and the basic argument of it is that sci-fi itself is a product often of people's paranormal experiences, including UFO experiences. So, you know, what the skeptic will say is, oh, this is just science fiction that you're spouting and you're projecting it under the phenomena. But what I'm saying is, no, actually, the science fiction is itself a product of these experiences. And then it gets projected back onto the experience. Yes, I get that. You're sort of right, but you're only half right. And I really think that, Michael. I really think that fiction has been a kind of paranormal practice for millennia and that science fiction is just the recent form of that. And I also think that science fiction is the place in our culture where we can talk about a lot of weird things that we can't talk about in our religious institutions or our political institutions or our institutions of higher education. As someone who's read a science fiction novel a week since the 70s, I like science fiction, yeah. not literally a week, but a lot, let's say. And so I'm curious, what science fiction do you love? I love science fiction that takes the paranormal seriously. And I know a lot of it doesn't. So not the so-called hard science fiction? No, like Philip K. Dick. I love Philip K. Dick. I read his novels. I watch his films. And I think it's essentially true. You know, I think religion is essentially a movie Michael, I think a lot of this is a movie. It's a projection of something that's deeper and more basic in us. And it's not that I believe the movies that we're seeing. I don't believe the religions. I don't believe the science fiction. But I think there's a projection or a projector behind all of this that is essentially true and that is basically us. And so that would be my position. But you kind of dodged my question, which is just like, what books do you love? So I don't read a lot of fiction, to be honest, but I read a lot of Philip K. Dick and I read his exegesis, which is his journals that he spun out obsessively after his experience of, of this cosmic mind in 1974. Yeah, Eric's book on all that was quite fascinating. Of yeah, so that's the kind of thing. And you know, a lot of the New Age spirituality, a lot of the human potential movement that I have written a lot about, it's deeply indebted to science fiction. People like Terrence McKenna, for example, were huge science fiction fans. So I think there is a, a kind of science fiction influence on the zeitgeist that we don't really recognize. But I also think that science fiction writers often have these paranormal experiences. And so it, it's not just a one-way street. I think it's a two-way or a three-way or a four-way street. It's so interesting. In terms of the kind of reports or, you know, confessions or whatever you want to say that you 
receive, I'm sure, on a daily basis. What do you think is the main trigger in our culture for having a, a flip, having an opening experience? Is it what we would guess? I would guess it would be psychedelics. I think it's trauma, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I sit down with an experiencer, you know, and I've sat down with a lot of experiencers, and when I was young, I naively thought that, oh, I would just listen to enough of these stories or experiences and I would eventually figure out what was happening. I don't believe that anymore, Michael. And I know that when an experiencer sits down with me and tells me a story, I know that's not the real story. I know that what actually happened is actually much stranger than the first version. And that if I keep sitting down with the experiencer and keep listening to the story, it'll get stranger and stranger. And so I've come to the conclusion that people's experiences are far stranger than probably they are even willing to say. And so is reality. So that's really my conviction. And I really do listen to experiencers. I'm not particularly gifted myself. I don't have these experiences in abundance. I have a little sliver, maybe, to make me sympathetic, but I don't claim to be an experiencer. But I know experiencers, and they are weird. <laughs> They are truly strange, strange beings. And I don't mean that mildly. I mean, they are truly strange. And so I think different human beings have different capacities and different experiences. And I take that very, very seriously. I'm curious what you mean when you say you take it seriously. I think that they're in contact with something real. Yeah. Okay. That's yes. what I mean by seriously. I do not hear their experiences as hallucinations or as all of the easy explanations that people just pop off that really explain absolutely nothing. Right. They explain away the experience. Yeah. They're fake. They're fake explanations. Just shut up. Just don't give me that stuff. I mean, these are just easy words people pull out of the sky to dismiss people's experiences. And I don't want to dismiss them. Not that I don't want to. I just don't. And I think the fake explanations are fake at the end of the day. That doesn't mean I believe the experiences either. This is where the movie metaphor really comes in. What I really think at the end of the day is that human beings encounter some aspect of reality and essentially a movie goes off in their head. And sometimes that movie has physical effects on the environment. And we call these miracles or we call these synchronicities or we call them whatever we call them. But I think that these movies have real effects in the physical world, but they themselves are not what the experience is about or the contact or the, the phenomenon is about. I think the phenomena is speaking to us through these events or through these apparitions or through these movies, but that there's something behind that which appears, as it were. And so, again, my position is paradoxical in the sense that it takes the experiences seriously, but it doesn't take them literally. Yeah. In a way, you're almost saying that the mind can't understand the experience itself and so makes a story about it. I don't think we're capable of that. I think our senses and our rational capacities have evolved for very specific reasons. And whatever this is, is simply beyond all of that. So we live in a world that is, to put it mildly, troubled and facing some challenges at the moment. That's an understatement. There you go. Yeah, and we all know what they are, and maybe we don't all agree, but you can imagine the list I would reel off here. 
And you say you're an optimist and you have a hopeful sense of all this. I'm curious, how does your view, how does it unfold a vision, an optimistic vision of the future? Yeah. So there's a very practical kind of psychological reason there. And then there's a metaphysical reason as well, which I know most people won't be able to follow or accept. The practical or pragmatic reason, though, I think most people will understand. And it's that, look, we can be very pessimistic or we can be optimistic, but thought tends to produce itself. So if we are pessimistic, the chances are very good that something really bad will happen. <laughs> yep, yep. And yep. if we're optimistic, we may be naive, but the chances are pretty good something good is going to come about as well. So that's the simple kind of psychological reasoning. The metaphysical conviction, and this is a belief now, Michael, and I want to own this as my belief. I really do think that we're in contact with us from the future. And if we're in the future, that means we made it. <laughs> right? And yeah. Right? And it also means that we care about ourselves in the past. And to me, that's ultimately an optimistic vision of things. Even if we experience those beings from the future in negative terms, we still are experiencing those beings from the future. And to me, that's positive. And that's probably the ultimate source of my hope or my optimism is a kind of metaphysical belief, I guess. You know, in your descriptions, you're describing us in the future having these capacities to either time travel or we understand the black universe, how it works, or something. And we're messing with ourselves, as you put it, which is, yeah. I think, a, a hilarious and awesome viewpoint. But the essence of the flip or the essence of realization or revelation seems to point to something, I'll just put it this way, far beyond that, that we are, in essence, somehow divine. And I know maybe I'm making a false division there between ourselves and the future being able to manipulate time in some way and something, I would say, even bigger than that or deeper than that. And so I'm just curious, am I making a false division there that's not there in your thinking? Or do you think this also points to some much more fundamental revelation? I don't think it's mistaken at all. But again, this is a source of optimism, right? I mean, if we share in some kind of divinity or if the flip is about some kind of identification with some kind of cosmic mind, that's ultimately extremely positive. Yeah. And my hope is, is that whatever future form of consciousness or future species that we become is closer to that realization than we are now. I mean, clearly we're not there, to put it mildly. We keep identifying with our nation states and with our ethnicities and our religions and our cultures. And as a result, we kill each other. And I guess the hope is, is that whatever this future species is about or whatever this future form of consciousness is about, it's not about that. It's not about identifying with the local or the national or the the nation or the culture or the religion. It's, it's about identifying with this broader species. So I don't see them as opposed, but I recognize that they're different. You asked, Michael, you asked about the UFO and, you know. Yeah, yeah, which is great. I'm not imagining they're opposed. I'm just curious how they fit together. I don't think we know. I certainly don't know. And I recognize that I'm offering a view of things that 
is maybe too positive and too optimistic. But again, I think I've explained why I'm doing that. I happen to believe that, and I happen to think optimism is better than pessimism at the end of the day. I think it's more pragmatic. I think it just does things. But I also have this metaphysical conviction that, based, frankly, on a lot of work and a lot of life and a lot of listening to experiencers, it's not naive. It's not coming out of just wish fulfillment. It's based on a lot of, well, thousands of stories that I've heard or read. I could be wrong. Okay, but so what? So what, Michael? So what if I'm wrong? Who cares? Jeff's wrong. (laughs) But um, I'm not alone, and maybe these things are on the right track. I just want to be right enough. I just want to be on the right track. And it's really a function of honesty again, right? It's not a function of knowing or being certain. It's a function of here's what the data or the stories suggest, and here's my best guess right now. And you asked me, so I told you. And, and again, you didn't give me any beer. So I, <laughs> I, I'm i just talking out at the top of my head right now. Yeah, and I really, again, deeply thank you for making the time to come on the program today and for sharing all these insights. I, again, have really enjoyed both reading your books and hearing you speak and, and definitely what you've shared with me today. So yeah, thank you so much. And I'll be sending you some beer. All right. Thanks again. And have a great rest of your day. All right, Michael. Be well. That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat with me this summer in Costa Rica. From August 3rd to the 10th, we will come together to focus on non-dual meditation practice with a particular theme of embodiment of awakening in meditation and in life. For seven days, I'll be giving non-dual meditation teachings, practices, and guided meditations, as well as personal meditation instruction to each member of the group. The retreat will be hosted at the Blue Spirit Retreat Center, located in the Nosara region of Costa Rica's Pacific Coast. The retreat center is perched on a hilltop overlooking the ocean and a three-mile white sand beach that is a protected turtle refuge. The pristine nature, subtropical climate, and members of the Deconstructing Yourself Sangha will create a unique environment for your meditation retreat If you're interested, check out deconstructingyourself.org where there's a link to the information page. I look forward to seeing you there. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Michael Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. 
I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, so if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct U. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there, and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the deconstructingyourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at deconstructingyourself.com slash sign up or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R dot com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 